Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday I saw the Brexit kitten shop in Greenwich. It's uh, it's quite something. The what, sorry? The Brexit kitten shop. Say what? Yeah, there's a shop mm-hmm. and all of the windows are covered in massive pictures of kittens. Mm-hmm. And then where the name of the shop would be, it says Brexit. Does, does there a van outside that says, get in, come and look at my kittens? That's like Thierry Henry-shaped shit. It still doesn't make it not shit. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and yesterday I met a puppy. I can't stop thinking about his ears. Oh, what were they velvety? Like? What kind of puppy ears did It was did a spaniel. Oh. oh. So they were just the sort of ears you'd like to put in your mouth. And I'm Jen Offord, and last night I decided to have a bath and listen to some whale noises to try and relax me before I went to bed. Never done that before. And were you harpooned? <laughs> <laughs> no, but the whale noises were not very relaxing. They're quite creepy, actually, just in case you wanted to try that. They are quite... Mournful. Mournful, yeah. yeah. So you had a mournful bath. Yeah, I couldn't stay in it longer than 20 minutes. I was like... This is weird. Don't you like stay it. in a bath for longer than 20 minutes. That's what you're meant to do when you're... I didn't ever have baths, because, like, what's the fucking point? I don't have baths because they're boring. Exactly. If I've you're got, having I've one to relax... i that changes colour. That's pretty good. If you're, You've got a nice bath, though. I've got a corner bath. Yeah. The only downside being that my cat likes to shit in it. <laughs> that is a significant <laughs> downside. <laughs> Later on, I chat to journalist and author Daisy Buchanan about the complicated relationship that is having a sister. And she should know, she's got five. Wow, Jesus. We talk how to hold a grudge with crime writer Sophie Hanna. I'm talking to Lucy Adams from Skateboarding England about 10-year-old skateboarding sensation Sky Brown in Jenny Off the Blocks. And I do Disney's nothing. <laughs> nothing. Oh, she is so pleased. She looks like the cat that just shot in the bath. But first, Brexit betrayal, German invasion, an epic side eye. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're struggling to remember when life wasn't just this. The heat is on. It's on the street. <laughs> and by heat, I mean meat, as Nigel Farage's army of dump gammon <laughs> left the Craggy Island Fair, sorry, no, Sunderland, and began the epic Brexit betrayal march to London. Epic is their word, not mine, because the photos, which unlike buses, do not lie, are less Lord of the Rings, more Partridge's historical reenactment, as just 350 people signed up for Nigel's big walk. But where was Nigel in all of this? Good question. Leave means leave, but March does not mean, you know, actually March. And the face, heart and bumhole of Brexit. The willy of the people. The willy of the people. Hopped on the betrayal bus. Home. In other Brexit news, the DUP is angling for another shake of the magic money tree as Teabag scrabbles to get them on side for another parliamentary vote on her deal. I just can't anymore. Uh-huh. I saw that Greg Jenner had called them the troll puddle martyrs, which <laughs> made me laugh a lot. That is lovely. Uh, Tin and Deeb had said, I can't tell whether this is just a very underattended rally or an overattended meat raffle. <laughs> <laughs> Farage leaving the march early seems like the perfect metaphor for Brexit, right? Yes. Except I've actually found another one. Try this for size. All right. Last week, bomb disposal experts were called to Manston Airport in Kent when an unexploded Second World War II bomb was found there. Why is this important? Well, 
The airport is where the government is planning to put a lorry park, because that's totally normal, to prevent chaos on the roads around our major ports in case of a no-deal Brexit. I don't know about you, but making everyone park on an old airfield as people pour through their goods while everyone loses the will to live doesn't sound so much like an import policy as it does a car boot (laughs) sale. But who the fuck are we, right? Anyway, back to that bomb. It was British, designed to blow up the runway in case of German invasion. Because of course it was. <laughs> Newsnight presenter Emily Maitlis spoke for us all as she let her eyes do the talking while interviewing Labour Party politician Barry Gardner last week. Maitlis threw some serious facial shade on Gardner as he ineptly dodged the question of what his party would include in its manifesto on Brexit should a general election be called anytime soon. And if you're interested, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he responded, eh, we'll decide at the time, almost as if... Such an eventuality couldn't be foreseen. Does Can't that, plan for that sort of stuff, Does Jen. that remind you of anything else? Mm, no? I'm going to say no. Okay. As Maitlis rolled her eyes and scribbled furiously on the notepad in front of her, and I would love to know <laughs> what she wrote, the Momentum community lost their fucking Twitter shit. Sack her, the biased harpy! And I am out. Please make it stop. Okay, let's let's wiggle on from Brexit for now. Noted cunt Boris Johnson has been at it again, claiming police funding used to investigate historical child sex abuse cases was money being, quote, spaffed up the wall. OK, right, so let's be fair, and I'm going to put that into context by repeating what Boris said exactly. An awful lot of police time now goes into these historical offences and all this malarkey. £60 million I saw was being spaffed up the wall on some investigation into historic child abuse. What on earth is that going to do to protect the public now? Yep, still fucking vile. And that is coming from a man who spent £53 million of taxpayers' cash on a bridge that doesn't exist. Proving that you can absolutely judge a man by the company he keeps, Donald Trump's former chief strategist and weapons-grade shit, Steve Bannon, told Sky News that Boris is a guy with big ideas and a role model who would make a good prime minister. And the scary thing is, that is a distinct possibility. Hannah, please can I have a go on your screaming pillow? Yes. Thank you. Jesus Christ. A mass shooting at a New Zealand mosque gave British newspapers the chance to be their best selves last week. Oh, they shone. Be that chastising Facebook on the front page for failing to take out videos of the carnage in Christchurch where at least 50 men, women and children died, while simultaneously running videos from the start of the shooting on autoplay on its website. That was the Daily Mail, if you're interested. Or choosing to bemoan how sad it was that a cute little blonde boy turned out to be a mass murderer. Fucking hell. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda No-Fucking-Around-Arden has already taken action on gun control and met with friends and family of the people involved, as well as community leaders. If they ever start a course called Statesmanship 101, she needs to be in it. I think the New Zealand government are also going to give them um, the families of the victims some money to help with funeral costs yeah. and like just generally thoroughly decent response by yeah. a government. So disappoint us now, please, Jen. <laughs> yeah, I will, no problem. Um, so figures published last week revealed that knife crime in England and Wales hit a nine-year high in 2018 with the equivalent of 59 offences being committed every day. And over a fifth of those cautioned or convicted were under 18. 
which is pretty horrible. Figures also showed that compared to 2009, sentencing for those convicted of offences was tougher, with 37% leading to a custodial sentence compared to 23% in 2009. So it's good to see those sentences are working. Well, don't worry, as figures also show the number of stop and searches carried out in 2017-18 were down to around 300,000 from 1.4 million in 2009 to 10. So Chancellor Philip Hammond announced last week an extra £100 million was to be made available to police to tackle knife crime. Now, I'm not saying more stop and searches are the answer. I just think it's a pretty good indicator of just what the fuck has happened to the police over the last nine years. But hang on a minute. What else happened in 2010, guys? Was it an election? Yeah, Yeah, it was an election. um, The trouble with this is, though, that stop and searches allow institutional racism yeah, no, they're and part of, to thrive. Yeah, they're so part of the problem. Also, just a quick shout-out to the BBC News website, which had a video on it captioned, Knife Crime, what's it like to be stabbed? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't watch it. They officially employed Partridge for real. Yeah, they? They really I didn't have. watch it because I thought probably unpleasant was all I needed to know. Anyway, what's the late Diana, Princess of Wales, been up to this week, I hear you ask? Hannah, do you know what the late Diana, Princess of Wales, has been up to this week? <laughs> Funny you should say that. If the Daily Star is to be believed, and when isn't it, mm-hmm. she's been passing on messages to Meghan Markle about her ne'er-do-well family. Obvious. Hang on, what? Isn't that clearly a load of dried was? Well, yes, but feel the need to repeat this. It doesn't make it any less believable than anything else the star has ever printed. <laughs> Apparently, in her message to psychic twins, I shit you not, she passed on nuggets of joy such as, and I quote, your baby will be very close with Will and Kate's children and I see them doing many play dates together. Well, it's certainly nice to see that wherever Diana's spirit has been since her death in 1997, she's keeping up with modern parenting verbiage. The twins, who are called Terry and Linda Jameson, a fact I wouldn't mention unless it gave me the opportunity to say that they sound like the first couple you'd meet at the world's most disappointing swingers event, (laughs) also believe that Diana attended her youngest son's wedding to the now Duchess of Somewhere by somehow disguising her spirit as a fly. Possibly attracted by the smell of all this bullshit. I love that this psychic message was... These cousins are going to hang out from time to time. <laughs> Shut up. That sounds implausible. Oh, God, she uh, she spent some time away from the angles just to let us hear about that. My mate went to see a psychic healer once. They'd like obviously arranged a time and date to meet, right? She walks in there. This woman stood up and goes, oh, is it? I'm not going to say her name. Oh, is it so-and-so? And she's like, yeah. And the psychic healer goes to her. I knew it was you. Is it because you arranged to meet there at this place at a specific time? Could that be how you knew it was her? I feel the need to to point out that I once, I've probably told this story before, I once was asked to leave a tarot card reading (laughs) because I was in Sydney. I was with uh, another English girl who uh, wanted to go and I was just, I thought, I've just got to experience this because I've never been to one of these. And I went and the very first thing she said when she turned over the first card, she said, I feel like you've travelled a long distance. (laughs) (laughs) 
On a Princess Diana note, I'm just going to give a little shout out to my friend Chris Jameson. Uh, is he anything yeah. to do with? He's the, not. Um, I'm, with, um, I'm, I'm Terry not going to. I'm not going to comment on how his swingers parties go. <laughs> Chris, what are you do in your own spare time? You just enjoy yourself, fella. But he managed to join a group that talk about Diana all the time on Facebook. He managed to wangle his way in and then just, as a point of pride, continually referred to Diane, Queen of Our Hearts. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very different vibe, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, anyway. Move over, Lin-Manuel Miranda. There's a new kid on the block with a serious tale to tell via the medium of musical theatre. Anyone want to guess whose hits, I said hits, will be repackaged to tell the hilarious story of a book club attended by fairy tale princesses in the name of gender equality? Share. It's renowned feminist Britney Spears. All right, go on then. I was going to say the Sex Pistols. No, it's renowned feminist Britney Spears. Once Upon a One More Time, <laughs> what the fuck is that title? <laughs> written by John Hartmere, a man. Well, they, they should have called it Hit Me Baby, One More Disney Princess. No, I mean, it's just equally. <laughs> yeah, it's just ridiculous. Uh, anyway, it's going to tell the story of how these princesses' lives are changed when they end up reading The Feminine Mystique and then they want to stop singing to animals. Songs presumably include Toxic Masculinity and Oops, I Patronised the Shit Out of You Again. Hit me, baby, one more Disney princess. <laughs> I want to see that. A big cheer for young people. There's a shitload of them abandoned classrooms to go out and protest against climate change. Now, I just swapped double maths for a march in a heartbeat. I mean, you know how much we love a march. But there was genuine passion on March the 15th as all over the globe, 1.5 million youths put down their books to march for change in the first global climate strike. In Sweden, youngsters gathered in Stockholm Central Square to listen to Greta Thunberg, who at just 16 has inspired millions and been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for her climate activism. What were you doing at 16, Hannah, Jen? Exactly. Her TED Talk (laughs) is feckin' awesome and she's well worth a follow on Twitter where you'll find her at Greta Thunberg. Basically, the kids done good and we do well to learn from them. More power to them. Well, would anyone like some good news? Yeah. Some good news from Philip Hammond. I don't believe you. No, really. It was announced in last week's spring statement that sanitary products will be given out for free in secondary schools across England from September. Can I get a whoop whoop? Whoop whoop! Hannah, it was there in spirit. The move came in response to rising concern by head teachers that girls were increasingly missing school due to period poverty. So this announcement follows other recent announcements that the Department for International Development would commit £2 million to tackling period poverty around the world and that hospitals would supply free sanitary products to patients as of July. But if you think our work here is done, I urge you to read the comments on The Telegraph's article on this. No thanks. Yeah. Well, guys, I've <laughs> selected a couple just for you. Jennifer Hashimi, for example, who's wondering if students will nick the products and then sell them at cut price or take them home for the rest of their families, the cunts. <laughs> <laughs> um, meanwhile, Dee Hargrave would like them to give out free condoms to stop them breeding as well. By them, I think he means poor people. Um, On the free condom front, you're a little bit behind the curve there. 
Meanwhile, Peter Dravers would like to know if gender equality demands will ensure males receive free shaving accoutrements. Well, will I? Since apparently it's the patriarchy who wants me to shave my fucking legs. So... There you go. Just three people who don't think less well-off girls should be able to go to school. Fair, right? So, fuck them. Fuck them in the eye, preferably. And give generously to the likes of Bloody Good Period or Next Time You're Shopping, stick an extra packet of sanitary towels in your basket and donate it to your local food bank. Hear, hear. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we glance across the pond and note it's Women's History Month over in America. That's nice, isn't it? And then on closer inspection, we notice there seems to be some sort of race to change it to make women's rights history forever. Not so nice. Downright terrifying, in fact, as draft documents suggest America will refuse to reaffirm its commitment to the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. That was um, a declaration put into place in 1995, which is regarded as the blueprint for global women's rights. Obviously, last week I touched on the personhood law in Alabama that gives a full spectrum of rights to fetuses and embryos. And the Trump administration has basically declared open season on reproductive rights, with five different US states moving anti-abortion bills up the legislative food chain just last week. Indeed, under Trump, US negotiators have found themselves less aligned with European nations and more aligned with Iran and Saudi Arabia. Ah, yes, Saudi Arabia, where 10 women's rights activists are currently on trial with none of the women granted access to lawyers. Cool. This turning back of time is all taking place at the major United Nations Conference on Women this month. Shannon Kowalski, Director of Advocacy and Policy at the International Women's Health Coalition, said they, the US, are coming into the negotiations in a way that is very aggressive and that advances an anti-gender, anti-women position from the very start. One of the first things they've tried to do is block reaffirmation of Beijing and subsequent documents, trying to downplay the political importance of this document as setting out the vision for women's human rights. They are trying to weaken commitments to that overall. And the problem is when America speaks, a lot of the world does tend to listen, which, to put it politely, is bleak as fuck. Hey there, people of London and the surrounding areas. Anyone who's been paying attention will know that we've moved to a new London venue, King's Place, and a super venue it is too. We'll be back there on April the 18th with Helen Lederer, and again on May the 19th when we'll be chatting to she of Best Newcomer nomination at last year's Edinburgh Fringe, Sindhu V, and the legendary Catherine Tate. Am I bothered though? Actually, yes. Yes, I am. For info on this and all our shows, keep your beady eyes on our rather charming new website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. Hello, I am joined on the phone by journalist, fellow podcaster and author, Daisy Buchanan. Hey, Daisy. Hello. Thanks very much for talking to us. It is my absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and I'm very excited about this. Oh, bless your chops. Your latest book, The Sisterhood, is out now, and it is a love letter to sisters, specifically your sisters, Beth, Grace, Livy, Maddie and Dottie. And so as the eldest of six sisters, I can only assume that growing up in a big group of females meant you were all BFFs or bitter rivals at all times with absolutely no grey areas in between. Is that right? That is correct. It was (laughs) a very extreme time, and that state of affairs could shift within hours and minutes. You went to all the states and a sort of real rainbow of feelings 
every single day of the week. I mean, that is a whole lot of group dynamics to navigate. What I think is interesting or confusing is I feel as though I'm not good in big groups because of having that experience. I'd hope that it, it showed me how to navigate that, but actually I get quite anxious in groups. And I think it's perhaps because with sisters, you are biological sisters, I think. And, you know, obviously there are exceptions to this, but we were lucky in that we all knew we were, we were in it for the long haul and we could cross lots of lines. Mm-hmm. And so I feel as though in polite society, in other groups, there are rules that I don't know and I've never learned because my first experience being in that big group was being with those people where you could cross all the lines. My first question was a little bit tongue-in-cheek because I think it's what everyone thinks about women and about girls, either that you are firm friends with no arguments and it's all meadows and skipping, (laughs) or you hate each other and there's a fight to the death, a cat fight to the death, if you will. And it's not like that at all. That is absolutely true. And I think it's so interesting the way that that relationship becomes polarised. I guess I wanted to write the book because I love books about sisters and novels about sisters and I've got a theory that it's quite hard to write about groups of women you know it's the old-fashioned bestial test I guess people or editors saying well you've got a woman and a lot of it is about her interactions with other women and why is why is this interesting and why does nobody pursue a big whale in this book (laughs) and so you come back from that and if they are sisters that's a really good cover to explore those relationships between women. And the reason so many writers, I think, have been drawn to explore them is because, as you say, there are so many shades. What I love about those relationships we have with women is because I think that, you know, as a as a horrible, self-obsessed person, but, um, you're always looking at, at your sisters, be they biological or otherwise, marvelling at your similarities and differences. And all of that love and hate, all of that intensity comes from how you see yourselves in each other and how you fail to reflect yourselves as well. And I think sometimes women, and it's not necessarily helpful or rational, but to do with the the world we've grown up in, we feel as though we want someone to give us permission to think and feel and look the way we do. And if that's not being validated or mirrored, I think we feel a bit let down and it can be a bit bewildering for us I definitely feel as though as I've got older I'm in my 30s now I have got so much better at really celebrating and championing difference in women and that's in my actual sisters and in the women I feel a sisterhood with and that's sort of all women everywhere really what is really thrilling about having so many women who I share you know DNA with and biology with and yet we are so 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 different is that I can look outside, you know, look at other women and realise there are so many differences to to celebrate. It's lovely to, you know, to feel validated, to see yourself in someone else. But it's also really, really exciting to appreciate how a person's different experience or viewpoint or background could you know, lead them down a completely different path to yours. There's a really lovely line in the book and you say, if you spend time with any woman, you will find your twin and an alien. <laughs> I I absolutely believe that. The idea of sisterhood is often extrapolated to female friendships. She's like a sister to me. And I've got to be honest, I hear that most from women who don't have actual sisters. I mean, I once hit my sister on the head and then panicked and trapped her in a bin until she promised (laughs) not to grass me up. And I just, 
I just don't think a mate would stand for that. <laughs> it's a bit like, you know when you stub your toe and it hurts so much that you think, oh, maybe if I bash myself in the knee, that yes. will detract from the pain. Absolutely. That's, that's what, I'm just going to limit this accidental act of casual violence with some purposeful violence and that will solve <laughs> everything for me. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. When my sister Gracie got married, one of her friends made a bit of a speech about how she felt like Grace was her sister too and that she was one of the sisters and we were all a bit, mm-hmm, <laughs> really? <laughs> That's interesting. And I do think I have a complicated relationship with my sister's friends and some of them I really, really love and I feel with some of them it's a joy because you know that your sister's friends are excited to meet you and my friends are always so excited to meet my sisters. But I was just talking to my sister and she was talking about one of her friends. So she's got her little boy, Arthur, my nephew who I love with all my heart she was talking about how one of her friends really is Arthur's favourite and he gets very excited about seeing her and obviously she is to all intents and purposes she's another auntie I think that you don't have to be related to someone to be that presence in a a young child's life and obviously the more people who are around Arthur who love Arthur he's excited to be that just wonderful but I did also have a real pang of um right, right excuse me what <laughs> I don't think it's fair, frankly, that this woman gets to spend time with my nephew and I would like to be seeing my nephew. Like a strange sort of a jealousy and it's not very healthy. And I do think that something that has come up a lot is, is there a difference between friendship and sisterhood? And I suppose what I do feel is that I am aware that I, I cannot take my friends for granted I shouldn't take my sisters for granted but I know and I hope that our bond is pretty much unshakable and I know that I'm really lucky and there are lots of people who don't feel like that about their biological families at all but I also know that with my friends I've got to put the time in I've got to nourish and nurture those relationships whereas I do you know talk to my sisters all day long on our whatsapp group which is also called the sisterhood but I suppose the expectations are different. And I know that my sisters, that everyone's really busy. And because there are so many of us as well, that we can sort of pick up the slack and be different people for each other at different times. Whereas I mm-hmm. do think friendship is in some ways much more complicated. And for me, sisterhood is as simple as, I don't always like you, but I always love you. And that really is how I feel about women in general, that sometimes I will be aware of women I know, whether they're active acquaintances, we're just women in the public eye and I think I feel a bit let down by things you have said and done and I don't agree and I don't think it's good for women but ultimately we're all on the same team and you know I've got to have your back there's a whole section devoted to this in the book but could you share a few of the weirdest things people have said to you because you have sisters my favorite is when I was a very self-conscious teenager getting bikini waxes at the local beauty salon the very, very nice lady who waxed me also waxed my sister Beth. And she'd say to me, it's funny because you're quite fair and your sister's very dark, but down there you're the same. <laughs> That's horrific. <laughs> I was thinking, thank you for making me think about my sister's pubes. And also, 
it seems sort of weird that we will never look at each other's pubes like this, but a stranger has really got a head up close to the area. One of my favourite ones. Come on now, There's, there were six of you. Didn't you, you know, practice kissing on each other? <laughs> <laughs> and my retort, which I had to take a little while honing, if anybody said that to me now, and say, so you've got brothers. Did you ever give each other hand jobs? You can hear more of my chat with Daisy in this week's Sunday Chops, where we talk about body positivity, adverts in magazines, some more on feminism, and some more weird shit that people say to sisters and that they say to each other. In the meantime, I can heartily recommend you get hold of The Sisterhood, which is available in all good bookshops. You can follow Daisy on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and help her get better at Instagram if you give her a follow at the Daisy B. We are here in the fine city of Cambridge. I'm so close to my house. I kind of thought about coming out in pyjamas today <laughs> with best-selling crime writer and woman of many other talents, Sophie Hannah. Hello. Jen is also here. Word. <laughs> we would like to talk to you, Sophie, about your book, which is now our podcast, How to Hold a Grudge. Yes. And it's got a subtitle, which is From Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. It's a very long title, but the subtitle's crucial because that's the bit that says you can actually take your grudges and get them to work like magic to make your life better in so many ways. Are you a natural grudge holder? Yes. So I've always held grudges and I've always been aware that my grudges don't cause me any distress and that I actually enjoy them. And (laughs) um, and how this became clear to me was that I have always read a lot of self-help books. I have genres that I love mainly crime. That's, you know, 90% of what I read is crime. But when I'm not reading crime, I'm reading self-help. And that's been the case for well over 15 years. And I noticed that there would always be a point in a self-help book, however brilliant I thought the book was, there would always come a point where the self-help book would say something like, and you must not hold grudges and you must always let it go, let it go, move on, think positive if you're clogged up with grudges and resentments. And, and I would always think... There's something inaccurate about this because I have grudges, but I don't feel clogged up. I don't feel resentful. I don't feel bitter. In fact, my grudges help me to feel the opposite. They actually help me to deal with those negative feelings. And, and this is the bit that's really counterintuitive and that people struggle most with when they read my book or listen to my podcast, holding grudges in the right way has always helped me to forgive people much more easily people can't get their heads around that at all because we've all been taught that holding a grudge is the opposite of forgiving somebody and it's not. And so eventually I thought, I'm going to write a self-help book and I'm going to write a self-help book that says grudges are good for you because I know mine are good for me and I think grudges can also be good for the world at large, not only for the grudge holder. And to show that actually the best way to move on and the best way to forgive emotionally is to allow yourself and give yourself official permission to hold that grudge in the right way. And the, the in the right way part is crucial. Could you give an example of, uh, of a grudge that you hold? First of all, no grudge is silly or trivial. All grudges have different roles. So, I mean, in my book and on the podcast, I talk about my grudge grading system. So a 10 carat grudge is the strongest and most powerful kind of grudge. Usually, if you have a 10 carat grudge, that will be a grudge where the grudge worthy behavior has done you real harm and 
the person almost definitely intended some level of harm. A one carat grudge, which might be the silly and trivial ones, it doesn't really matter who it's about. Yeah. It could be the postman, it could be your husband or whoever, but a one carat grudge very often would be something where the person didn't mean you any harm at all. Mm-hmm. So that obviously you deduct points in terms of severity if the person really meant no harm and did something grudge-worthy by accident. It's like a sentencing system. Yeah, it's like, how serious is this grudge? And in order to determine the grade of your grudge, there's about between 12 and 15 questions that you answer. So including things like, did they mean you harm? How long have you had this grudge? How much harm was done to you by the grudge-worthy behaviour? All kinds of questions. So that's how you assess the grade of the grudge. But, you know, people will often say, well, isn't something really silly and trivial too irrelevant and too unimportant to hold as a grudge? And I always say, well, that question is based on the assumption that grudges are bad. If grudges aren't bad, if grudges are great, as I believe they are, then why not hold a little one? I mean, no one would ever say to you, get your earring collection out and throw away all the small earrings and only keep the big ones because there's nothing wrong with small earrings and there's nothing wrong with small grudges. Some of the smallest, silliest ones are the most entertaining. In the book, I have an example of every carrot rating. So I have like Mm. my top 10 grudges and I choose one from each carrot rating category. Mm -hmm. I'm aware this is making me sound extremely eccentric, but it really works. It It really (laughs) works as a grudge categorising system. For me, a grudge is a story. It's not a feeling. Dictionaries say a grudge is a feeling. That's okay. my. That's the main starting point of the different theory that I have about grudges. So for me, a grudge is a story you want to remember because it's useful to you in the present and might be useful to you in the future. It might protect you. It might inspire you. It might motivate you. And that story I always want to remember because... You know, it's a situation where somebody is being blatantly unreasonable and trying to involve you in their unreasonable behaviour. And so I I always want to sort of remind myself that if anyone tries to do that, I'm not going to be involved in that in any way. It protects you because you then alter your expectations and behaviour around that person. Does that mean that a grudge essentially is held forever? No, not at all. So I I recommend in the chapter in the book called How to Be a Responsible Grudge Holder, (laughs) I recommend that everyone does a regular audit of their grudge cabinet. So first of all, everyone should have a grudge cabinet. It needn't be an actual cabinet. Every grudge brings an opportunity. So when you have a new grudge, you think, what's the opportunity here? I recently accrued a new grudge somebody in fact it was yesterday that was how recent it was at least it wasn't one of us two (laughs) somebody behaved in an inconsiderate and indiscreet way and I was you know I've got to the point now where I'm so advanced in my grudge holding methods I can almost bypass the annoyance and upset altogether because I'm straight into thinking this is a fantastic new grudge what can I learn from this one that I haven't learned from other ones? And what I learned from this particular new grudge was I need to be much more careful about who I trust with what information. Ideally, writing down your grudge stories is useful. So I would say if you can have a grudge cabinet that's an old handbag, an old shoe box, a box of any kind, a drawer in your bedside table, anything where you can actually write down your grudge stories and the list of lessons you've learned from each one and the list of benefits that you've had in your life because of having that grudge story, 
that all can then go in your grudge cabinet. And that has the effect. It sounds bonkers. I'm aware of that. But it has the effect that it gets the grudge out of you and it becomes a separate object in itself. And that object becomes a sort of symbolic, commemorative justice object. Like a Horcrux. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't feel the person's got away with it scot-free because you've got your grudge. It's almost like a little certificate. And weirdly, that then frees you up emotionally to forgive them straight away if you want. That's an interesting point there because one of the reasons I don't hold grudges is because I don't have a particularly good memory. Ah, And there's sometimes, if I haven't seen people Mm. for ages, I can be a good 20, 30 minutes into a conversation with them before I think, Oh, do you know what? The last time I spoke to you, you pissed me off so much. But because the time has passed, yeah. it's completely gone. That would help my grudge holding, certainly. You don't hold on to the negative feelings at all. I mean, that that's, uh, that's where the dictionaries are all wrong. The dictionaries all say a grudge is a feeling of resentment or anger or hostility occasioned by a perceived insult or injury. Yeah. And that is so untrue. It's a life lesson is what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, the feelings happen as a result of the grudge sparking incident or GSI, as I call it (laughs) in the book. So the GSI happens. You have all the feelings, whether it's anger, annoyance, upset, whatever. And those feelings are totally natural and totally justifiable. And it's not a problem that we have those feelings. But that is not the grudge because those feelings can pass And the grudge remains as a story that you want to remember because it tells you something useful either about that person Mm. or it points you in the right direction of how you want to behave. The thoughtless behaviour that I created a grudge about yesterday, it was thoughtlessness of a very particular kind and it's absolutely made me think, oh, I must make sure that if I'm ever in a situation that I would just check with the person that it was okay for me to do that thing. Yeah in precisely the way that the, my grudgee did not check with me. And so now I have a new kind of good behaviour that I always want to do. And so it's inspiring, it's motivating. And the feelings of annoyance or anger, if they're there at all, they just pass when they're ready. And so this is how I, you know, normally I don't argue with the dictionary. I agree with the dictionary about most words and their meanings. But I just became aware that most of my grudges have literally no negative feelings attached to them anymore at all. I don't have grudges because usually I just have it out with someone. Oh, interesting. I just say, you're wronging at the time in a variety of ways occasionally. So let's say you're in the situation I was in yesterday. I was minding my own business, as Mm -hmm. I so often am, immediately before a grudge-worthy incident. (laughs) Minding my own business, I suddenly discover that this person has done this thing that I think is highly grudge-worthy... What sort of categorisation are we talking? Inconsiderate and indiscreet. So where is that on the scale? Let's say, let's say you found out that your best friend Mary had told her entire book group about your secret affair with Fred and you had asked her never to tell anyone. I mean, and that's so, not great, is it? Yeah. But she only did it because it's relevant to, you know, they're reading Captain Corelli's Mandolin and, and everyone's discussing <laughs> okay. affairs. And so yeah. she goes, well, you know, my friend is seeing this man called Fred. So you find out she's done this. But they're not going to, like, tell my husband. Who knows? I mean, they might. I suppose. Let's say there's 30 who, who of knows? them. They might be on Twitter right now doing it, Jen. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Mary, what have you done? OK, but in that situation, are you the kind of person which is like the opposite of me who would just pick up the phone and go, Mary, 
I'm bloody pissed off with you. What the hell did you think you were doing? Would you always tackle it head on? Usually, yeah. If I felt if I, if I felt it was worth it, and yeah. it sounds like Mary has been a bit of an asshole, so <laughs> she. Also, I think that people need to learn. A lot of the time, I don't think Mary did it to spite me. No, she didn't. But Mary needs to know it's not cool. She yeah. can't do that kind of thing. So, so this is really interesting. Mary will learn a lesson from so, this. Yes, well. absolutely. So one of the chapters in my book is what kind of personality traits make us more or less likely to be grudge holders. Am I a psychopath? Is that what we're about no, to do? No, no, no. So you're, what you've just said, and I, I actually give this example, I, there's somebody else I know, and she and I were in a situation where we and this other woman were having a meal together. This other woman, who was basically bonkers, suddenly burst into tears and ran out of the restaurant. Me and Barbara looked at each other and went like, why did Felicity just run out of the restaurant in tears? We'd better go and investigate. So we go and find her. She's like sobbing on a street corner nearby. And we say, what, what on earth is wrong? Everything was absolutely fine. We were having a nice meal. Felicity says, you two were talking more to each other than to me. Oh, Felicity, grow up. Oh, yeah. I mean, Felicity has major jealousy issues and being left out issues. Okay. okay. So Barbara, who is like you, she's very direct. Mm-hmm. Barbara, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay. Barbara literally goes... Oh, for fuck's sake, I am not having this. Sorry, I've done nothing wrong. We've done nothing wrong. Fuck that. And she storms off. Bit more direct than I would have been. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. The next day, Felicity rings Barbara, says, oh, I'm sorry I was a bit funny. And Barbara goes, oh, no worries. Forgets about it. Because as far as Barbara's concerned, she said her piece. She's made her views clear. It's all over for Barbara. So if you can do that, react in the moment and you say what you want to say, then you are going to be the kind of person less likely to feel the need to hold grudges. Now, I'm the opposite kind of person. I will never, never, no matter what the circumstances, if I'm the person who's been wronged or upset, if it's my kids, then I will, Mm -hmm. as my kids' school will testify. Uh (laughs) But if it's just me, I will literally never say, I'm angry, I'm annoyed, I'm upset, ever, ever, ever. And so... I feel that my grudge holding system enables me to react how I want to react, have a semblance of justice in my head, change my behaviour accordingly so that I can make sure that I tailor my future relationships with those people in a way that protects me and, you know, that I'm not just endlessly being the victim of their bad behaviour. But it doesn't involve me actually going to them and saying... I'm annoyed about this, you did that wrong. And the reason I'm so reluctant to do that, Mm -hmm. and people have told me this is wrong of me, and I'm quite willing to accept that this is a failing of mine, but I I also can't imagine ever getting past it. I somehow feel that to go and say to somebody, you've done something that I think was wrong, and it's annoyed me or upset me, is in itself a wrong thing to do. Also, the great thing about holding grudges in a responsible way is that you become very aware that other people, whenever they want, can form grudges about you. And that's, yeah. a, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. How You're to welcome. Hold a Grudge is in all good bookshops. It's in all good bookshops. And where will we find and your the podcast? podcast? So the How to Hold a Grudge podcast, I should say, 
It's not just a repeat of the material in the book. After I published the book, I realised that since I am currently the world's only grudge guru, <laughs> that I still needed to do lots of work. So all my new grudge research is in the podcast. And that is also called How to Hold a Grudge. And it's on iTunes, Spotify, you know, just anywhere where podcasts podcast are. podcast platform of choice. Yes, exactly. Thank exactly. you, Sophie. Thank you. Enjoy this interview. Yeah, you did. And the good news for you is there's more from Sophie because obviously there was loads more stuff to talk about with her. And the good news is the rest of that interview will be coming up as one of our two Sunday chops this Sunday. We talked to Sophie about her new project, Dream Author, in which she's helping writers, in her words, to get out of their own way. And also we talked to her about what's coming next with Poirot and also whether the change in the backstory of Poirot that happened when Sarah Phelps was writing Poirot for TV, whether that will have any impact on what Sophie's writing next. So keep your eye out for that on Sunday or make your own life a little bit easier by pressing subscribe and it'll be waiting for you next time you check. Hey there, you lot. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you, because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team at Standard Issue UK or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy and at Mixter Noonan. And I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well at Standard Issue Magazine and even Instagram at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us. Look at our faces. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we land an ollie in the halfpipe of women's sport. I'm not sure that works, to be honest. On many, many levels. For those of you like me, apparently, who aren't fully down with the terminology, I'm talking about skateboarding and specifically Olympic skateboarding. So with each Olympic Games, the host gets to add new sports and lose a couple of the existing sports which helps to keep things fresh and youthful and eliminate some of the weird old ones that no one actually participates in anymore. And they have to fulfil certain criteria, like they need to be played in a good cross-section of countries and by men and women. And you'd probably be right in thinking this is not the case with some of the existing sports. Anyway, it also means I've got a few more to do since my little foray into Olympic sports back in 2012. You couldn't get much more straight than the addition of skateboarding to the Tokyo Games and some rather lovely headlines last week as it was reported 10-year-old Sky Brown is due to become Britain's youngest ever summer Olympian competing in the discipline and Sky will be 12 by the time she competes, if indeed she does. I was lucky enough to catch up with Chair of Skateboard GB, Lucy Adams, who told me a little bit more about Sky. I'm joined on the phone by Chair of Skateboard GB, Lucy Adams. Hello, Lucy. Thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, good morning. Hi. How are you? Busy week last week, I imagine? Yeah, last week we had a, a really, really good fun week. Really good news. GB Skateboard, Aspiration Fun Skaters out there. So everyone's really positive and behind that. Because you had a lot of media attention, obviously about the qualification process for the Olympics in general, but predominantly about Sky Brown. So we, yes, we announced five skateboarders that we managed to get UK Sport Aspiration funding for to help them on their journey to try and qualify and compete at Tokyo 2020. 
Um, and yes, we announced that Sky Brown is one of those five. Um, so we were very busy, yeah, of course. We did um, lots of different telly and press and the skaters were all skating at her park, big skate park in Manchester called Greystone. So it was, it was really good news. Is Sky taking it all in her stride? Absolutely. I mean, she is obviously, she's been on this path for a while now where she's got crazy media attention and she's, you know, she's basically a, a child celebrity. She was on Dancing with the Stars Juniors as like a child celebrity and she, she managed to win that. So she's definitely used to having lots of media attention and just like loads of like young kids looking up to her and being in awe of her so um this wasn't that much different but i think it's really good that it's recognizing her skateboarding and that talent that she has she is very young do you think she has what it takes to make it to the olympics i've read some analysis about it that said that she's got the tricks down but she doesn't quite have the speed or power what do you make of that so with skateboarding being in the olympics it's our debut um and, and Tokyo. So with skateboarding and competition, we've never really even represented for our countries before. The skateboarders at the top of their game, they're used to being in competition representing the brands that they ride for. For lots of the skateboarders, we don't really understand the importance yet. But with Sky, I think for her, she's already used to stepping up to something that's so much bigger than other children her age that she is just kind of fearless and she's just excited and she just harnesses that and just has fun out there and I think being able to have that and not getting nervous and not getting totally stressed by just the fact that it's such a big thing it's just going to be a really a real advantage to her and mm. um, like you said in your question yes I think being so small and in the, the the, the discipline that she's, she's chosen and she excels at, which is the park discipline, it might be hard for her to gain the necessary beam power to get the right height and that some of the other women may develop and already probably have at that level. But she's got the tricks and she's got the consistency to be able to put together a run that does mean that she she could be judged right up there. She's got big tricks. You need to stay on. Mm. So I think if you fall off at the Olympics, you're not going to be in that top group. We're going to see people staying on for their 40-second run or 45-second run, whatever it, it is on the day. And that's what Sky can just absolutely do. Do you think 10 is a bit young for this kind of level of competition and attention? There's been other young athletes. There's been other young people that have got to that level and things just change. We're seeing that famous child with loads of followers on YouTube in all different fields. As long as we can keep her happy and just having the fun and keeping that passion and that's I think why there was an attraction for her to drive for Great Britain because there is no real pressure to go out there and train like as much as anything, we want her to have fun and inspire more and more kids to get into skateboarding. So tell us a little bit about skateboarding and the addition of skateboarding to the Olympics and about the growth in the sort of female market. I see a lot more women on skateboards these days than I feel like I used to. Is that something on the rise? Yeah, absolutely. And so the Olympics is absolutely going to help that because there is an equal amount of men and women in skateboarding in the Olympics. There'll be hopefully an equal amount of coverage for both of those competitions. So we will see as many women skateboarding on the telly as, as the men, which in reality at the moment isn't actually 
male and female categories, there'll be way more men competing than, than women at the moment. The, the ability to bring those women up and then have more coming in, like the likes of, of Sky's age, is just going to be phenomenal. And you're right, we are seeing women and girls' nights and that happen in skate parks to help encourage new people to come down in a more friendly environment and with other like-minded women so that they feel it's their space and their time rather than having to go to a really busy skate park session with boys and teenagers and men flying about really fast. We're definitely seeing brands as well take note of that and really supporting and helping women's sessions and coaching sessions. I mean, you mentioned brands, so it is the the brands and the media, really, that women's sport needs to sort of get on board. Obviously, yesterday, yeah. I'm sure you would have seen The Telegraph announced that they've launched a new women's sports section headed yeah. up by the the absolutely wonderful Anna Kessel as the mm-hmm. um, women's sport editor, who I think will bring real passion, enthusiasm and interest to the role. How do you think things like that are going to impact on sports like skateboarding, for example? Yeah, I think that is great because we're going to be fired into this world of kind of mainstream sport as a result of this. Like the qualifications are going to be are be covered. So yeah, all the qualifiers on the road to get into Tokyo will, will hopefully be covered in the mainstream. And and what's really good about that is, I mean, hopefully all those channels will come to us and the field of skateboarding as experts, and and that helps our industry gain a bit more recognition. But using the people that have been growing and developing and trying to push our sport to the outside world. So hopefully there becomes collaboration there. We, you know, we have such a talented bunch of women photographers at the moment. Mm. More women have started to film skateboarding and hopefully they can get noticed. What's also exciting is just the fact that if it's more like that in the mainstream, then it's just easier to see. Whereas, you know, at the moment, lots of women are, are able to use social media to serve to carve out what they want to see. So if I was to just follow all the main skateboarding brands and magazines and media outlets on my Instagram, I'm going to get male, 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 female, male, 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 female. Whereas I can suddenly now start to follow who I want to follow and see what I want to see, and it's great. But if I'm able to just sort of see that more in the mainstream, even better, I think. So if one of our listeners hears this and they are inspired by Sky and they think, oh, I want to get myself down the skate park or they've got a kid that they want to sort of encourage to do that, do you have a website where they can have a look and find a local skate park? There is Skate Parks Finder. If you Google that, you'll be able to see some information around that. And if you're particularly... um, women or girls looking to get into it then we have a great site in the UK called Girls Skate UK that has so much um, information about women and girls rights and events that are happening all over the country. So Skateboard GB is operated and administered by Skateboard England um, for the next uh, cycle so if you check us out at Skateboard England on Twitter I'm on Lucy Adams Skate. Lucy thanks so much for joining us. No worries yeah thanks for having me. Oi, oi, Mickey here. So, yeah, you know, we love making the Standard Issue podcast and we're well chuffed that so many of you are listening. A little playful punch on the arm to each and every one of you, you smashers. Now then, you can help us keep making content that champions women by bobbing on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue, and any spare bunts that you might have, a little bit of coin, a little bit of dollar, 
Just pop it our way and we are supremely grateful. And just so you know what's coming up in that there women championing content, you may have seen a trailer for the forthcoming Sally Wainwright series, Gentleman Jack, about to appear on the BBC. Well, we only went and had lunch in a bloody trailer on the set of it. That's right. And you can hear our chat with Sally sometime very soon. Mmm, mystery. Please give generously. Standard issue for all women.